This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 6th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about taming global supply chains, and David Grimm is here to talk about some stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. As consumers, we are all part of a vast network of suppliers, producers, retailers, and back to consumers again. These complex webs have an impact on the people caught in them and the environment on a global scale. I spoke with Dara O'Rourke about how we can better measure these impacts and use that information to create more sustainable systems. There have been exciting advances in the science and technology of global supply chain management. At the same time, very important progress in the science of sustainability and of our processes to measure the environmental social health impacts of production and consumption. These two are coming together in very important ways to help companies, governments, NGOs, and ultimately consumers better track the full impacts of global production systems and global consumption systems. So can you give us some examples of the kinds of things we're talking about measuring? What is taken into account? What do we know about? And what isn't taken into account when companies are examining their supply chains for sustainability? So let's take apparel. In apparel, there are major challenges for brands and retailers in the U.S. or Europe or wherever to trace all the way back down their supply chain to the original production of the fibers, the cotton, for instance, that goes into their blue jeans, from cotton farms around the world to spinning and weaving and dyeing to cutting and finishing the factories in China that may be ultimately cutting your jeans, your T-shirts, to distribution, to retailing, to your use of the product all the way to end-of-life disposal. Companies are trying to do a better job of tracking the full life cycle In electronics, much more complex. And this is taking big brands at the tops of these global supply chains, the Apples, the Samsungs, the HPs. They've had to go all the way back down to literally mines in Africa where what has now been called conflict minerals 
tin, tantalum, tungsten, gold that go into the components that make up your cell phone. For these companies that are obviously making contracts, doing purchasing, why is it so difficult for them to actually find out where these materials are coming from? Right. So many of these supply chains, they call tiers of suppliers. And many of them will have four or five tiers down. So you will go from the brands you know. So we know Apple. We know The Gap. And only recently have the public learned about Foxconn, the largest electronics manufacturer in the world, Pouchen, the largest footwear manufacturer in the world, Lee & Fung, the largest apparel, Asia Pulp & Paper, the largest paper manufacturer in the world. That's tier one. Below Foxconn, they will have suppliers of components to go into that cell phone or that laptop. Below those component suppliers, there are metals and chemical suppliers. Below those suppliers, there may be another round. They're set up really as commodity systems in which the cotton gets mixed. Literally, when you go to the store now and buy a hamburger, we now have country of origin labeling laws in the U.S., and you will see if you look at your meat that you take home tonight, it may have four countries that your burger meat came from. So we have massive commodity markets that are mixing, that are changing overnight due to currency changes, to political controversy changes, to arbitrage in risk and price and delivery that these complex supply chains work in. So you mentioned in your article that there are actually some disincentives out there for these companies to look at their supply chains so closely. What, what are some of the reasons they might not want to do that? Well, a number of these environmental and health and social issues, they have been what economists called externalized. They are not in the full price or the full calculation of the production of the products that we buy and these companies sell. So the first big disincentive is that many companies have essentially benefited from a system that externalizes the cost of water use in China or the cost of pollution in El Salvador or the cost of natural resource extraction in Indonesia. So they actually have a, a financial incentive to not really account for the carbon and the water and the waste and the toxics in their supply chains. What's pushing companies that have maybe an invested interest in not participating in this, what's pushing them to get involved in analyzing their supply chains and looking at it from a sustainability viewpoint? The smart companies are seeing two things. Regulation is coming. There is movement towards pricing and regulating carbon and water and these other issues. And so the smart companies want to get ahead of that and begin to do it themselves. And the public is increasingly demanding it. Transparency is coming to these supply chains where it will be possible for consumers, for NGOs, for stakeholders to see these impacts and to demand more information on them. So companies gradually are expanding what matters to them. Okay. Well, so let's talk about some of the solutions to the problems of figuring out where these things come from and, and how to monitor them. What are some of the solutions that have been proposed? The kind of leading scientific method for evaluating these full supply chain impacts is a technique called life cycle analysis. And that's something that has been developing for the last 20 or so years around the world. This is basically a methodology for identifying what matters most, what are the hot spots in the supply chain, how do you evaluate impacts to long-term ecosystems, climate change, ozone depletion, et cetera, but also short-term acute impacts on local water pollution or local air pollution or local worker health issues. So life cycle assessment is really the science of 
bringing together and measuring and evaluating and normalizing these different type of impacts so you can get a single measure of overall impacts and where the hotspots really are. Life cycle assessment, though, is still quite complex. It's quite data-intensive and quite costly for companies to do. So a number of initiatives have emerged in the last five years really to allow for faster, less data-intensive evaluation of supply chains and of products. So one area of that is called footprinting, simplified methods to try to get this quicker sense of where are the hot spots in your supply chain. What are the biggest impacts that you should focus on first to try to bring down your main environmental impacts or health impacts or social impacts, et cetera. And we're seeing more and more scorecarding techniques, mm-hmm. um, disclosure strategies, simplified sustainability assessment tools. Mm-hmm. And so once all this information is categorized or obtained, what are the big benefits that we're going to see that could come out of this, of this, you know, all information awareness <laughs> that might be on the horizon? We see major impacts of consumer choices of consumption from the automobiles you drive to the food you eat that has been driving major ecological problems around the world from climate change to drought to biodiversity loss to toxics. 70% of U.S. GDP is connected to consumer spending in one form or another. So enabling consumers procurers at the government procurement, universities, hospitals, institutions, procuring, allowing them to see the full impacts allows us to begin to shift consumption and shift production towards uh, less environmentally damaging, less toxic, less sweatshops. Also, huge opportunities for companies to identify win-win opportunities in their supply chain can lower costs lower risks in the supply chain, increase their kind of control and management of their supply chain, so they're going to have better products that are less damaging to the environment. So there's the potential here of really transforming entire systems of production and consumption to be much more sustainable, much more healthy, producing products that meet people's needs without the damaging environmental social health impacts. Dara, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. Dara O'Rourke writes about the science of sustainable supply chains as part of a special issue on rethinking global supply chains. You can read his article and more at www.sciencemag.org special supply. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have another story on the fate of plastic. Last week, we talked about tiny plastic fragments trapped in Arctic ice. This week, we've learned of a new destination for these polymers. So, Dave, where has the plastic been turning up now? Well, this plastic is actually turning into rocks, and these plastic rocks are being found on the shores of some Hawaiian beaches and actually some other places in the world as well. This type of plastic is actually known as a plasticlomerate, <laughs> which is my new favorite word. Uh, and it's not just plastic. It's plastic, volcanic rock, beach sand, seashells, corals, and maybe some other stuff mixed in. So this is not just one solid material. It's sort of a Frankenstein-type stone we're talking about. So how do these little conglomerates actually form? They suspect that it's forming when people are camping or fishing. They build campfires plastic melts in the fire, and then it gloms on to whatever else is nearby, sand, rocks, 
coral, whatever. But it can also form via forest fires or lava flow. Basically, anytime you have something very hot and you have plastic in the area, and because there's so much plastic anyways, we're predicted to have created six billion metric tons of plastic since 1950, enough to coat the entire planet in plastic wrap. So there's certainly enough plastic around to form these plastic agglomerates. And when you've got the plastic and you've got the heat, these scenes seem to be created. Do they all just float around and end up on the beaches? I think the ones they reported here were found in Hawaii. Well, the researchers suspect these are also falling to the bottom of the ocean because when they're combined with other rocks and heavy materials, they are very heavy. And that's a concern because it means that these rocks could actually become part of the fossil or the geologic record. So in hundreds, thousands, millions of years, when whatever lives on this planet digs some of this stuff up, there may see this layer of rock that actually has maybe melted toothbrushes, melted plastic bottles in it, that's going to look a lot different from all the other rocks in the geologic record. Next up, we have a story on the predictability of science careers. For scientists who work in biomedicine, the chance at leading a lab, becoming the grant-getting primary investigator, is a big goal, but the chances are actually pretty slim. Now there's research into these researchers that claims to predict scientists' fate. So Dave, can we start with how they assembled this data? Well, the researchers looked at 23 million abstracts on PubMed, which is this massive online database of scientific papers. And they comb through author names and they comb through journals and impact factors, which is a measure of how theoretically important a journal is by how much the papers in that journal are cited. They ended up with a list of about 25,000 scientists. And then they looked at things like how successful were these scientists and how did that success tie to the types of publications they had, and the number of publications they had. So they had a ton of data, both on publication record and also these other variables about what their lab is like and that kind of thing. What kind of patterns did they see once they looked at all the data? We saw a couple of interesting patterns. One was that the first few years of a researcher's papers were enough to predict who would become a principal investigator, so a leader of a lab. But one of the most fascinating things the researchers said was that later in a career, the number of publications was actually potentially more important than the quality of the publications that researchers that had a large number of publications in low-ranking journals seemed to be doing as well as those that just got a few publications in high-ranking journals, which was a surprise to the team. Is this really enough information to make an individual judgment on a single person's career? I'm saying this because there's a tool on the site that lets you actually try this out for yourself. There is a tool on the site. You can actually go to the website and plug in some variables and see how successful you're going to be as a PI based on your publication record. What it does tell us is something we kind of already suspected, which is that impact factor, the the quality of the journal you publish in is still the strongest predictor of how successful you're going to be as an academic investigator. And that's not actually something that a lot of scientists are crazy about. They think there should be other factors in academic success. Studies like this may prompt some people to rethink just how we evaluate potential academic candidates. Lastly, we have a story on those famous tree huggers, koalas. As you may well know, koalas only eat the leaves of one kind of eucalyptus tree, but researchers have noticed them clinging to other types of trees. We may now know why this is, but first, Dave, can you tell us some theories on why these koalas were cheating on the eucalyptus tree? So they were cheating on eucalyptus trees with acacia trees, and you would suspect them to hang out on acacias because koalas can survive completely 
on eucalyptus trees. They eat the leaves. They can get even moisture from the eucalyptus. So researchers have always been a little bit puzzled about why they'd be hanging out on acacias in the first place. Some theories have been maybe there's more shade there. Maybe acacias grow in places that are a little bit cooler. And especially in Australia, the summers can get incredibly hot. So perhaps the koalas are just looking for a way to cool off. And so for this research, they actually started out by measuring the temperature using a tiny little weather station in and around trees. But then they turned to look into the infrared. What were they able to see? They did some thermal imaging. There's actually a very cool picture. You've probably seen a lot of pictures of koalas on trees. You've never seen a picture like this. There's a pretty cool thermal image of a koala on an acacia tree. And what they found was actually they were kind of right. The koalas are hanging out on the acacias to cool off, but it's not because the acacias are shadier or because there tends to be cooler weather around the acacias. It's actually because the trees themselves are cooler. They can actually be seven degrees colder than the surrounding environment, whereas eucalyptus trees only get about two degrees colder than the surrounding environment. So it's worth it energy-wise for the koala to come on down a eucalyptus, go over to an acacia and get up there because it helps them regulate their temperature? Exactly. Especially if it's a hot day, it is definitely worth it for them to do this. So does this mean that koalas actually do need other kinds of trees besides the eucalyptus? They do. I mean, if we're talking about their survival, survival is not just about what you eat. It's how you make it through the day. And the acacias really seem to be helping the koalas do that. And it also suggests when we think about conservation for these animals, we can't just think about their diet. We have to think about their environment and the types of trees they have access to. Okay. So what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how tweaking the immune system could help us fight obesity and diabetes. Also a story about new insights into how the moon formed. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a breaking story about how the researcher behind two very controversial stem cell papers has agreed to retract them. Also a story about how patents are faring in the U.S. Supreme Court. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.